0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, broadcasting from the all new WrestleNomics headquarters. I'm recording on Friday, August the seventh, 2020. This week in wrestling business news, WWE has hired a new chief revenue officer and president, Danny Garcia, and Dwayne Johnson now own the XFL. A major executive is out at Warner Media. All Elite Wrestling reportedly has a women's roster, and the greatest storyline in all of modern professional wrestling: the story of television viewership. Another week, another chapter has come and gone. We will tell that story again today. But first, in a story broken on Wednesday by sports business journal's John Arand, WB has hired Nick Khan to be the company's president and chief revenue officer. Nick Khan leaves CAA, the creative artists agency, where he worked as an agent for people like Colin Cowherd, Mike Greenberg, and Jalen Rose. Khan essentially takes over the role that was formerly filled by WWE's former co-president and chief revenue officer, Michelle Wilson, who, along with other former co-president, George Berrios, was terminated on January 30th of this year. This will not be Khan's first time working with WWE. In his role with CAA in 2018, Khan helped WWE negotiate its US TV rights deal which resulted in a WWE splitting deals between NBC Universal and Fox for Raw and SmackDown, respectively, and resulted in WWE more than tripling its U.S. TV rights fees. WWE CEO Vince McMahon said in the press release, Nick's management style and personal demeanor are perfect for WWE's entrepreneurial culture, and he will fit right in with our exceptional management team. Khan seems to have been in the social circle of WWE executives for some time. The Sports Business Journal article noted, that Khan attended the 50th birthday party for W. Executive Vice President Paul Levesque. The Wall Street Journal notes, Mr. Khan comes from a show business family. His sister, Nanachka Khan, created the ABC comedy Fresh Off the Boat and is producing a new NBC series, Young Rock, about the childhood of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who's going to appear in that show. More on The Rock later. Yesterday, W filed with the SEC, Khan's employment agreement. The employment agreement actually took effect on Monday. It states that he will receive an initial annual base salary of 1.2 million. The agreement reads that Khan will be eligible to participate in WB's annual management incentive plan with a target incentive award for 2020 of 1.9 million, prorated for the remainder of the calendar year of 2020. More importantly, he will receive a $5 million sign-on bonus. Uh Uh-oh, wait, which is subject to certain repayment requirements if he voluntarily leaves WB without good reason or is terminated for cause. If Khan leaves within the first 12 months or is terminated within the first 12 months, he will have to reimburse WB the entire $5 million. If he only lasts between 12 and 24 months, he will reimburse the company 3.1 of the $5 million. If he lasts between 24 and 36 months, he will reimburse $1.2 million. So to keep the full $5 million bonus, he has to work for WB for three years. In addition, Mr. Connell will receive a sign-on grant of performance stock units of the company's Class A common stock. Basically, he's getting WB stock valued at $15 million, subject to the satisfaction of certain performance metrics. 40% of that will be vested in September 2022, and 60% vested in September 2025. So he's going to be pretty rich. Oh, wait. He will also be eligible to participate in WWE's performance-slash-restricted stock program and will have an initial target equity reward of $1.9 million. That, too, prorated for the remaining portion of 2020. Khan, who lives on the West Coast, will move to Stanford, Connecticut, which WWE will assist him with. The agreement also notes that, quote, since the beginning of 2019, the company, WB, has paid to CAA and or certain of its affiliates an aggregate of $5.1 million, which consists of commissions on certain licenses, as well as management recruitment fees. It goes on, Mr. Khan has no family relationships with any director or executive officer of WB, and there are no arrangements or understandings with any person pursuant to which he was selected as an officer. Of the company end quote the interesting tidbit there WB apparently as a result of having CAA help WB negotiate its US TV deals WB has paid CAA 5.1 million dollars in commissions. Curious if that is the result of ongoing payments or if those payments have been completed not clear from this brief paragraph Notable that the new CFO the chief financial officer for WWE, who also started work Monday for the company, Christina Salen. So she essentially takes over many of the duties that were worked by George Berrios and after him as interim CFO, Frank Riddick. Salen does not have president in her title. Nick Khan does. So I'm interested to see who takes a bigger public role in the company. Berrios, uh, for investors and for the financial community, Definitely had the biggest role between uh, Wilson and Barrios. arguably even Vince, at least in terms of the time he spent talking on earnings calls and on and at TMT conferences. So I'm curious who will go to the conferences, who will do the most talking on the earnings calls, or will it be close to 50-50? Notable, too, that we didn't see a, an employment agreement for Christina Salen I'm guessing that she was not compensated, uh, or at least was not given the kind of sign-on bonus that Nick uh, Khan apparently has. Khan will probably be tasked with finding a home, a buyer, maybe a major streaming player for WWE's pay-per-views, which is something that was talked about just before the pandemic by Vince McMahon. And then, according to Daniel Kaplan with The Athletic, a bankruptcy judge has approved the sale of the XFL to a group that includes Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his manager, Danny Garcia. That news, which was broken on Monday, and is just the latest evidence that continues to mount that we may in fact be living in a simulation. Some notes from an interview with New Japan President Harold May, translated from Tokyo Economics Weekly by friend and listener Justin Nipper, May told the publication that he wants New Japan to have its own 3,000-person capacity venue, and he says the company is in the process of looking for a venue now. New Japan World subscribers are down 10%, according to May, during the pandemic. But he says once New Japan started to do shows again in June, the number of New Japan World subscribers went back up to pre-COVID levels of approximately 100,000 subscribers a large portion of the subscribers just under 40% are from outside Japan. May discussed in the interview that about 20% of New Japan's current revenue comes from the sale of its content, including things like broadcast rights and streaming and video distribution. May says that in most sports, intellectual property related sales accounts for about 60% of revenue. May said there isn't that much potential compared to the world sports standard but said New Japan is shifting its profit structure and hopes to focus on intellectual property profit and revenue streams in the future. So that's one of the big differences between New Japan's business and the business of major U.S. companies like WWE and AEW. The major U.S. companies rely very much on revenue from selling the rights to its media, and New Japan very much lives more so in the old model of pro wrestling business, where live events still accounts for the biggest piece of their revenue. And from the sounds of it, their domestic market, Japan, the demand or the value for content for live sports content isn't nearly what it is in the U.S. New Japan's parent company, Bushiroad, noted in its initial public offering last year that New Japan's revenue is about 50% from ticket sales, about 30% from merchandise, and about 20% from the sales of its content. So that would be things like New Japan World and broadcast rights maybe from TV Asahi and maybe other partners, perhaps Samurai TV. New Japan ended its multi-year run on the U.S. TV network Axis at the end of 2019 when Impact Wrestling's parent company Anthem purchased that network. Of course, Impact now airs on that network. And we can report, by the way, that Impact Wrestling on Access was viewed by an average of 153,000 viewers in the month of July. That was up slightly from June, that averaged 141,000 viewers. The highest month of viewership so far for Impact is February, when Impact averaged 181,000 viewers. For comparison, Impact, which is on Access, which is in about half as many homes. As the USA Network and TNT, Impact is viewed by a little less than a third than either NXT or AEW, and its audience is roughly about a tenth of the audience of Raw or of SmackDown. A couple of graphs with some demographic breakdowns for the ages of 18 to 49, 18 to 34, and 34 to 49 are on my Twitter at Brandon Thurston. I will spare you the recitation of numbers. The Hollywood Reporter reported today that true TV president Kevin Riley will be leaving Warner Media. Warner Media is the parent company of networks like TNT, which airs All Elite Wrestling's Dynamite program. AEW president Tony Khan tweeted on September 30th of last year, oh, in response to me actually, that he officially started the AEW project on April 6, 2018 when he saw his friend, Kevin Riley at a party in Beverly Hills, and said that he was interested in creating a wrestling league and working together. Riley's departure from Warner Media is part of uh, executive restructuring under CEO Jason Killer. Is that really his name? Jason Killar? Maybe it's pronounced K-I-L-A-R. The Hollywood Reporter notes Riley has been a longtime Warner Media executive and first joined the former Turner as head of TBS and TNT. In May of 2019, Riley extended his deal with WarnerMedia through 2022 and added additional oversight to his growing purview at the company. In recent days, rumors have swirled that WarnerMedia Brass was considering an overhaul of HBO Max's program strategy, which put Riley under the microscope. According to his LinkedIn, uh, Riley had worked for WarnerMedia, and before that, the Turner Broadcasting System, since November 2014. Before that, for seven years, he worked for Fox, and from 2004 to 2007, he was the president of entertainment at NBC. Although Riley was likely instrumental in helping AEW get on TNT, he's not someone who worked with AEW day-to-day, and perhaps AEW's solid and even recently improving TV viewership Will continue to keep AEW in good standing with its network. And then from there, this week on RussellNomics.com, I actually posted two blogs. I was quite productive this week. Uh, on Tuesday, the article W hasn't created strong new IP in over 15 years. That article went up. Uh, I've talked about this subject on the podcast already a week or two ago, in which it has explained how. Cars is in many ways the John Cena of Disney. But then, yesterday, Thursday, among one of this week's issues of consternation, I did some research on the subject of women on the All Elite Wrestling roster and where they appear within the two-hour program, AEW Dynamite. So that went up Thursday. AEW's women have yet to main event Dynamite and seldom appear in other key quarter hours, is the title. And I do lurk around and and read and find some of the response. And I'm obsessed with analytics, so I always look at where the uh, article is being linked. I would say there's definitely some framing here. Uh, I don't know that I was expressing an opinion, but I definitely chose to write about the topic. And towards the end, I definitely did frame some details, let's say. But what I've learned is maybe you can think of a wrestling TV program and its quarter hours. In two hours, there's eight of them. You can think of it kind of like maybe a baseball lineup. And you put certain players and certain slots in the lineup as part of a strategy. I'm not the biggest baseball fan, but in baseball, you, you put somebody who's a good hitter in in the leadoff position to bat go at bat first. And you put a lot of your you know, better players at the front of the lineup. Batter number four is usually called the cleanup hitter. Usually somebody capable of hitting a home run and clearing the bases. And you might put your weaker batters at the end of the lineup. And I don't know how people who make decisions at AEW or within NXT consider this. But in a two-hour wrestling program, there are apparently some slots that are treated as a bigger deal. The main event slot, the eighth quarter, is pretty clearly perceived as a big deal. It gets called the main event and it gets advertised throughout the program sometimes, usually. The first segment is... More than any other segment, that is the most viewed quarter hour of the program. That's the case for both AEW and NXT. And that could be due to people tuning in and then tuning out as the the two hours go on. Could be due to a strong lead-in from whatever program was on before. And the segment that starts hour two, which is quarter hour number five, also seems to have some importance and has an advantage when it comes to gaining viewers probably because it is at the top of the hour as other programs are ending. And in fact, that quarter, number five, which is, again, the quarter that starts the second hour, and the main event quarter, quarter number eight, are the only quarters that are likely to gain in viewers. And that is the case for AEW. And when you factor out the programs for NXT that had an overrun, so therefore had a ninth quarter, When you factor out those and only look at the NXT programs that had eight quarter hours instead of nine, that is the case for NXT as well. So again, quarter number five and quarter number eight, those are the only two quarters that have more than a 50% likelihood of gaining viewers. Every other quarter hour, except for Q1, we don't know about Q1 because we don't have the quarter hour information for the quarter, the final quarter of the lead in the came before it, but for every other quarter... More than half the time, viewers are lost. Again, that is the case for both AEW and NXT. So, when people talk about a quarter hour losing or gaining viewers, I think we should be considering what quarter within the lineup we're talking about. If we're talking about quarter number two, three, four, six, or seven, it is generally, usually the case that those quarters lose viewers for both AEW and NXT. If we're talking about quarter number one, that quarter more than any other quarter is the most viewed quarter of the program for either program. If we're talking about quarter number eight or quarter number five, those quarters, more often than not, gain viewers. You might say that each quarter is biased to gain or lose viewers depending on where within the two-hour program the quarter hour is slotted Now, this is not necessarily new information. This sounds familiar from other quarter-hour studies from previous eras looking at RAW, maybe even going as far back as Monday Night uh, Night Wars with Nitro and RAW. This is not necessarily new information that the opening segment is strong, the top of the hour is strong, and the main event is strong. Now, these facts come with their own chicken-and-egg self-fulfilling prophecy problem. Do Q1, 5, and 8... Do well mainly or mostly or primarily because of where they're slotted in the show? Or do they do much better than they would otherwise because of what stars are strategically chosen to appear in these advantaged quarter hours? But let's slow down. Why is any of this important? Q one, five, and eight, why is any of this important? And why how is this relevant to women in AEW? Well, I looked at data from November all the way to the end of July, with the Christmas week excluded, when there was no dynamite episode. So that's 38 episodes. And we got labels for each quarter hour for each episode that are extracted from the text of reports in the Wrestling Observer. And we find that women have appeared on dynamite in those key quarter hours of quarter one, quarter five, and quarter eight. Women have appeared in those quarter hours just 10% of the time that's 11 instances
0: out of in the hobby it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks we hype ourselves up thinking maybe i can pull a Ken Griffey junior rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates it's all just a shot in the dark until now introducing slab packs from arenaclub.com the only repack that provides real value by going to arena club.com slash VOW net. Again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slap pack, $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net. Arena club.com slash VOW net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voice of the Wrestling Podcast Network.
1: 114. Now, of those 11, there are nine instances where a women's segment is just part of the quarter hour, along with other segments that contain matches, promos, or angles from men in AEW. So, nine out of the 11. So, that means there's only two instances where a women's segment entirely occupied the quarter hour. One of those segments is way back on November 6th. The other is on July 8th. The one on November 6th is a tag match of Rio and Shayna versus Emmy Sakura and Jamie Hayter. The July segment is Big Swole being turned away from the building and a Nyla Rose squash match with a promo afterward. And again, there are nine other instances where women are part of the 15 minutes in which a men's segment also occupied the 15 minutes. And in all other instances from November 6th through the end of July, according to this data and the labels that I've put together, all the other women's segments happened in quarters other than 1, 5, and 8, which means they happened in quarters that overall lose viewers more often than they gain them. And women in AEW, by the way, have never appeared in quarter eight which is the main event segment. And only once did women appear, albeit partially, in the opening segment, uh, Q1. And a a much different story in NXT where women have appeared in Q1, 5, and 8 dozens of times. Now, the obvious point to raise here is that the NXT women are just bigger stars and perhaps generally more talented than the AEW women. And maybe AEW has had better luck developing its male talent roster Because the depth of talent for male wrestlers in the industry generally, which is a male dominated industry, and which until relatively recently did not generally uh, value athletic ability and in-ring match quality ability of women the way that it has valued those things in men. And I think those are valid and truthful points. And I think those problems aside, oh, and by the way, this is all exasperated by WWE's effort to sign up a bunch of talent, uh, regardless of gender, in the months and years leading up to the launch of AEW in January 2019, which limited the available prospects that AEW could have recruited from. Now, that said, I still think that there's been a deficiency in recruitment. Shotzi Blackheart signed with W in October, Scarlett Bordeaux in November, Mercedes Martinez in January, Diana Perazzo, left WWE and signed with Impact in May. Probably AEW's best pickup over that time was Chris Statlander, who would also been pursued, according to her, by WWE. But further, AEW's been hindered by COVID-related restrictions on international travel. AEW's relied on a lot of female talent from Japan, who can't travel to the U.S. right now. And on top of that, Statlander and Britt Baker are out of action due to injuries. However, before those injuries... Before COVID started to affect the wrestling industry in mid-March, from November, at least through January, international travel was possible. We still almost always see women on AEW Dynamite positioned in quarter hours that are, even when men appear in them, more likely to lose viewers than gain them. And yes, I did just pause the tape and go into the spreadsheet and check. Two, three, four, six, and seven even when you look at the men only quarter hours, they lose viewers more often than they gain them. So I don't know. What, what does this mean? Why is this important? AEW's women's roster isn't as experienced, uh, as talented, and does not have the same level of star power that NXT's women's roster does, nor WWE's roster, women's roster generally. And yes, I think AEW has been disadvantaged by the talent hoarding of WWE, uh, AEW's recruitment of women has been hindered by the lack of depth generally in the wrestling industry of female talent, which is at least partially a result of the industry generally only recently beginning to value female talent the way that it values male talent more so. That said, though, it's apparent AEW has still missed the boat on signing some talents who could have been good additions to their women's roster, who were instead signed by WWE or Impact and that combined with even the pre-COVID pattern of not positioning women in key quarter hours makes me tend to believe that AEW isn't prioritizing or managing the development of its women's roster as well as it could. Now, female viewers don't necessarily watch wrestling, especially for the wrestlers who are women more so than the wrestlers who are men, but it's worth noting that on average among viewers uh, both age 18 to 49 and age 18 to 34 among those big 4 wrestling TV shows NXT AEW Raw and SmackDown uh, AEW Dynamite has a slightly lower proportion of female viewers than the rest. All that said AEW Dynamite this week this past Wednesday had its highest total viewership since March 18th. That was the first empty arena show. And it's highest key demo, 18-49 to viewership, since February 5th. Keep in mind this was against the NBA uh, for the first time since the return of the NBA, which was airing at the same time on ESPN. NXT did alright as well. It did it's highest viewership uh, since early July. 753,000 viewers. AEW doing 901,000 viewers. As usual, AEW beat NXT in every demographic except for... The P50+. plus. In fact, AEW and NXT's viewership combined on Wednesday beat out that of WWE Raw, which was on this past Monday, of course. Uh, AEW and NXT combined was just short of Raw's total viewership. Raw edging out the two programs combined by 4%. The narrowest margin yet. Raw only edged out AEW and NXT combined in total viewership and in viewers over the age of 50. And when I say all demos, I mean the nine demos that are given to us by Showbiz Daily. But that's not all. AEW alone beat Raw by just 2%. It beat Raw among viewers aged 18 to 34. AEW did not, as it did last week, edge out Raw in the female 12 to 34 demographic. But generally, the gap between Raw and maybe SmackDown, which since it's not on cable, showbiz daily doesn't publish as much information about. But the gap that Raw has, the huge lead that Raw uh, had at the beginning of this wrestling TV adventure in the fall, that huge lead has been lessening over time and lessened has lessened quite a bit since COVID started to affect wrestling. And I, I think we're on a track where we're going to see this trend continue to accumulate over time. And we may not see this... Next week or every week, but over time I think you're going to continue to see Dynamite edge out Raw in certain younger demographics. You're going to continue to see AEW and NXT combined beat Raw in certain demographics. This may or may not be the case for SmackDown 2, but again we get less information about SmackDown at least immediately. We'll see what I can do if I can get some more granular data about SmackDown later, which I do have for the first half of the year. But this is something I I was talking about uh, way back in September, and I don't know if I expected this to happen quite as quickly as it is. And again, I think COVID has accelerated some trends in many areas of life and business, and it's accelerated the decline of RAW, the decline of interest in the main roster for WWE, and I see no end in sight of the decline in interest in main roster programming. And WWE will hold on the longest Uh, All WWE programs, SmackDown, Raw, even NXT will hold on the longest to its P50 Plus audience. And Dynamite will get closer and closer to Raw in all demographics. The youngest demos first, followed by the older demos. And With Monday Night Football coming up in September, that will be going head-to-head with Monday Night Raw. And with AEW presumably not facing similar strong competition on Wednesday night, other than NXT, I think we're going to see the P18-49 to 49 of Raw and of Dynamite on the same week get very close before the end of the year. The moments of the wrestling fans, well, a certain kind of wrestling fans, economic justice may not quite be on the horizon just yet, but it might be within view in the coming months. Looking forward to a Halloween-timed, Q3 W earnings report and conference call, perhaps, with the latest discussion or excuses for why television viewership of Raw and SmackDown trend down and to the right. Speaking of which, the, uh, speaking of these excuses that investors and analysts have heard on W's earnings conference calls, our production team at WrestleOnix headquarters this week took the time to put together A number of sound clips with quotes from various WWE executives, mostly CEO Vince McMahon, with his explanations for why things are going the way that they are. This audio montage begins with the now infamous You Are the Authority promo from Raw in December 2018, where McMahon family members Vince, Stephanie, Shane, And Triple H, Paul Levesque, in character, but maybe partly out of character, acknowledged ambiguously certain problems with Raw and promised improvement. Again, that in December 2018. That will be followed by clips from various earnings calls and conferences, including those with George Berrios, extending from December 2018 all the way to just over a week ago on July 30th the best of WWE Excuses.
2: So everybody wants to know what's what's going on with Monday Night Raw, I'm sure you've asked that question.
0: We're out here tonight because um, we haven't been doing a very good job for you lately. And more importantly, we're going to give you what you want.
1: February 2019 This year,
2: you know, leading up to where we are. Now, we've had an you inordinate know, number of, of injuries. Later in February 2019. And we think it's cyclical. Vince touched on it on the earnings call in terms of the injuries we had in 2018. That that created a little bit of a speed bump for us. And we saw it in various places, which is why we think it is cyclical. April 2019. We had a, a very unusual um, situation in terms of talents, top talents as well as mid-card talents
1: being out. July 2019.
2: You know, there's been a lot of press written about this sort of state of the product or state of the content. the Variety article recently about some of the engagement and ratings trends. You guys sound pretty optimistic that you've turned the corner. There, there's a, you know, we, we've hired new people in a writing team um, that are uh, really going to help us out in terms of uh, television, and television ratings and digital and social, all that sort of stuff. We've got a new team in terms of live events uh, that have just started now so we'll see the live events going to continue the you know the the upward uh, trend um we uh, have definitely turned the corner and again as i mentioned you know we have uh, executive directors with each brand now Uh, they're going to go into more depth i think that uh, notwithstanding that we have spent more time on uh, storylines good ones uh, and also talent development it's a combination of a lot of things, all good things thus far uh, coming together and what I guess I'd call a relaunch in terms of our, our content.
1: October 2019.
2: Um, but I think it's fair to say that you know it's not what we want it to be and so we continue to be super focused on uh, on the core in-ring content, especially those three areas that I, I mentioned the storytelling, the creation of that, the attracting. Developing and retaining
1: the talent and then the production elements themselves. February 2020.
2: What, what have you done specifically um, over the last several quarters to improve um, uh, upon the content um, and engagement? Bringing on new talent uh, is paramount. Uh, you can see again with the ratings, uh, the current ratings notwithstanding what's going to happen in the first quarter. Um, you can see there's growth there. Uh, and, again, it's sort of like uh, the investment. At one time, we had a lot of talent that was injured. It, we don't have that right now. April 2020. Ratings for those Raw SmackDown have uh, appeared soft here uh, the past couple weeks, which is a bit surprising since you guys are, you know, basically the only live sports content on television. Ratings and whatever you're concerned, um, SmackDown has virtually been no change. Very little. Raw has suffered. Uh, but not necessarily because of the environment. It's uh, because uh, we bring in a lot of new talent uh, into Raw and it takes a while to get these new talents over. We no longer have Brock Lesnar, obviously, but we have a new champion.
1: July
2: 2020. It to lost to make
1: Raw and SmackDown
2: feel more useful. Uh, that is where we're going uh, and I'm uh, just As far as continuing on, I said what was new and building characters, you always have to build characters. Constantly.
1: I remember uh, Dave Meltzer at one point saying that Vince was a no excuses guy. But he seems to have found them in the last 18 months or so. But to move on to another topic and to think about how will new executives like new CFO, Christina Salen, and new chief revenue officer and president, Nick Khan, how will they grow W's business, which is on one hand more profitable than ever and will likely be breaking profit records for the duration of its current U.S. TV contracts that run until 2024. Yet, on the other hand, outside of possibly selling pay-per-views off of the network into a major streaming player, it's unclear what the revenue growth areas are for WWE in the years to come. International TV rights potential doesn't seem to be as strong as some had speculated. U.S. TV rights potential, as always, are murky and uncertain in 2024. Suffering television viewership doesn't help. But let's consider for a moment... All of that cash that WWE has sitting there on its balance sheet. The most cash it's probably ever had on hand. The research team at WrestleNomics headquarters went back to 2007 and couldn't find more cash on hand than it has on hand today by a wide margin. Now maybe that's just due to being overly cautious and protecting itself against economic uncertainty related to COVID-19. But maybe there's an opportunity for WWE to make some kind of Major purchase, some kind of acquisition or investment. Maybe we should be thinking about what kind of business WWE is in a good position to invest in. The movie business? Well, they're doing what they can there with WWE Studios. The football business? Well, another kind of entertainment business? What are the three major divisions? Media, live events, consumer products... Where is the future value in media? Well, live content, yes, well that's the present. Maybe more so in the future, there will be increasing value in media in the gaming industry. WWE's console games through Take-Two Sports are distributed by Take-Two Interactive, a company that has a market cap of $20 billion. That's many times larger than WWE's market cap but maybe there are other ways to invest rather than just outright acquisition. WWE does seem to have valuable intellectual property in the gaming space, and maybe the next paradigm in media along the lineage of social media, television, radio, the printed word, will be something in the gaming space. George Berrios was fond of recounting a story about how Vince McMahon, maybe somewhere around 2009, ever the forward-looking entrepreneur, somebody who had so much success using new forms of media, like cable television and pay-per-view. He recognized the potential value in social media and urged WWE invest in social media early, seeing it as a land grab. Maybe there is land yet to grab in the gaming space. Honestly, I know very little about the gaming industry. If you have any thoughts on that, please share. I've I've asked a a few people. I understand a lot of the businesses have already been eaten up by companies like Microsoft and Sony. But let me know what you think. At me at WrestleNomics. Read me at WrestleNomics.com. Or even at me at Brandon Thurston. And as usual, I'm Brandon Thurston. And I'll talk to you next time.